Okay, so this is Lou Peck, founder of the International Bunch, and I am delighted that Daniel Himmelstein has joined me, who's a biodata scientist at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Lou, and hey, listeners all over the world and the International Bunch. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to talk today about real-time open research but before we do, and I pre-warned Daniel, we are going to have a bit of an icebreaker so you can get to know Daniel a little bit better. So Daniel, who would you invite for dinner if you could, dead or alive? And let's say there are four places on the table, so that's three people that you'd invite. Okay, well, I will actually invite a pseudonym, and that is Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, which is the creator of Bitcoin. Now, no one actually knows whether this is an individual, a group, a man or a woman. So I'm sure a lot of people would like to invite Satoshi to dinner to find out who he or she really is. Love uh, it. But I would actually respect their anonymity and, you know, uh, allow them just to um, come to dinner and speak with me because I think uh, the technical innovation there was very exciting and uh, the way they did the research uh, and just sort of posted a PDF of their idea and then made an open source project and got the ball rolling from there was uh, really a cool way to, to research. So just you and them, him, her, them, it. <laughs> yes, Perfect. exactly. I love it. Okay, so just to put into context, Daniel and I met at the Researcher to Reader conference, uh, which was in London, when was it, Daniel? February? That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, feels like, feels like a year ago, to be honest. Um, and um, we, um, I spoke to Daniel after listening to a really lively and thought-provoking uh, debate about Sci-Hub, which actually I did agree with you from the beginning, I have to say. And I'm pleased to say that... Um, Daniel actually won that debate as well. So it was a really, really interesting debate. Um, so let's begin on our topic. And we'll put a little disclaimer in that we are doing one take here. So we will try not to swear or, you know, if there's some random noise that happens in the background or Daniel's fire alarm goes off, it won't happen for me because I'm at home. But uh, anything like that, you know, it's, it's these things happen. So sure. Daniel, let's start by talking about real-time open research. And I'm going to leave this open to you to start this conversation off. Sure, yeah. So I'm a, a researcher. Um, I do a lot of research into uh, better understanding diseases by bringing together a lot of data. And I guess in my research field, and I think a lot of contemporary research fields, you're really building on um, work that is being done by scholars all over the world uh, in terms of we're using data from big studies all over, we're uh, using software programs that, that are made by research groups all over, maybe some of them aren't even research groups, and um, the way science has traditionally been done where groups do a study in private and then release the findings once they're done with that study, yeah. I don't think really scales to the situation we're in. Um, and that's because we're sort of um, using so many different pieces from so many different players that we actually need a, a much more collaborative system 
where people are working on things together and uh, those research projects are, are sort of open from the beginning. Uh, so that's the general idea with real-time open research, the idea that we can do studies publicly in ways that we invite collaboration from anyone online from the beginning. And that sounds really, really interesting, actually. And it, I was thinking, because I've been reading about this recently and I've been hearing about it recently, and in terms of like the research that's been published out there, do you find that um, I've heard some researchers say that their institutions, for example, um, how can I put this, uh, discourage them from publishing their negative results, which is really hard because when you don't publish negative results, it's really hard to um, for someone else. Someone else will basically do the same thing again without learning a lessons learned from someone who's done it wrong in the first place. And I don't know whether you've experienced that in the past. Yeah, um, well, I would definitely say uh, real-time open research helps with getting negative results published. Obviously, when someone starts a study, they don't know whether the results will be negative or positive. Absolutely. They usually hope that they're positive, but, <laughs> um, you know, we should actually start moving towards um, a mindset that it's equally good to have positive or negative results as long as the hypothesis was an interesting one. Um, yeah. And if scholars are operating in, a, in an open way um, and they get negative results, well then those negative results are immediately posted uh, such that they're there. So um, sharing your research from the start sort of guarantees that you'll, um, your negative results will be available. Uh, but not only that, I think it helps um, with the pressure many scientists feel to make positive results such that they do what's called p-hacking, where they try sort of um, analyses until by chance they find one that looks to have worked and, and to be a positive result. Um, having your research public um, allows you and, and, and sort of kind of pushes you to accept a negative result because everyone then would see if you massaged your analyses to, to just sort of manufacture a positive result. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're doing these collaborations, though, what kind of tools are you, are you using? Yeah, so um, I guess the first big project I did that I, I would say was open real time was uh, a project to find new uses for existing drugs. So we were bringing together a lot of data um, about diseases and drugs and then trying to use sort of a computational network approach to make predictions of what drugs treat what diseases. And for that project, I used a sort of website called ThinkLab, uh, which was designed for scientists to be able to discuss their projects in real time. And uh, that was a great, great experience. We had, I, I believe, 40 community members that came in and helped us from telling us how to use different databases to giving suggestions uh, to helping us with sort of the large task this project was. Um, so that was a huge success. Unfortunately, that website, ThinkLab, um, has entered a sort of read-only state. It, it wasn't continued uh, to be developed by um, 
its creator. I think because it was a bit of ahead of its time. Um, right. I'm not aware of that one. When was this? What sort of time are we talking? Like 2015 to 17. Wow. That's a shame yeah. because there are tools out there now that do this kind of um, collaborative working together. I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, does Overleaf that kind of tool? I would say not really. So Overleaf okay. is a way to collaboratively write yeah. papers. Um, but we have to remember that research is a lot more than just writing a, a paper. A paper comes oh, yeah. at the end, yeah. but we're kind of focusing on everything that happens up until there's there's a paper. Yeah. Um, so actually what I use most now is um, the coding website, GitHub. Oh yes, I know GitHub well, yeah. Yeah, they have these, you can make issues, which are essentially like forums. Yeah. Uh, and so we use that a lot for discussion. Yeah, no, GitHub's a great tool like that. I've used that from a, a product perspective um, when I've been working with the development team as well. Yeah, um, so, so that works well for me and uh, the people I work with because we mostly work with you know software and code and data, uh, which sort of GitHub can, can encompass. Um, I would say a biologist could still use the GitHub issues to have discussion, although it's it's you know not really designed for scientists to have discussions. It just happens to be a use where it works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other tools that you would recommend that you've used as well as GitHub and obviously Think Lab, which is unfortunately no longer going, but maybe after someone hears this, they might think, oh. We should have a look into Think Lab, get it going again. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, but I, I think there are some services for um, more wet lab focused researchers yeah. to have like open lab notebooks. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think those are really cool. Um, I know there's protocols.io, which you can um, post your protocols on. Okay. Uh, one thing that I use is Jupyter Notebooks, which are um, notebooks for computational analyses where you can mix code, documentation, and the figures and the output that come out. Uh, so rather than having like a traditional, you know, pencil and paper, pen and paper lab notebook, I oftentimes use these Jupyter Notebooks. And is that something that's used a lot in your institution or is that something that you use on your own? Both. Um, Both, yeah. You don't need to be at an institution to use Jupyter. It's uh, just, uh, it's, yeah, an open software package. No, that's really handy. Um, so when you decide to um, do your open research projects, um, how are you making that decision in terms of what projects that you're going to be taking on? Is it something that's um, dictated to you by maybe the funding that's available or um, what your what are your priorities or what's kind of driving that? Yeah, so I try to put myself in a position where um, I get to research what I think the interesting problems are. And I guess that's always kind of a struggle with getting the funding to research what you want. Um, but I've been kind of lucky with having, I guess, 
um, advisors and different grants that, that give me that freedom. I guess uh, another closely related question is uh, when you're starting a project, how do you decide whether you want to do the project in an open manner immediately yeah. as opposed to say um, releasing everything once you're done yeah. or, or should you release everything at the beginning? And um, I guess because I'm rather confident in the benefits of um, doing my work openly, I really start things always almost now openly from the beginning. And, and I would only consider doing something otherwise, maybe if, if I thought I had um, some sort of discovery that um, once I, I said discovery could be really easily like um, done by other people. But I don't think most research is of that type. I think uh, researchers are always concerned about being scooped, having another a researcher come and uh, do the same analyses, but beat them to publication. And I actually yes. think being open usually helps in that regard because uh, it provides a public record that you did something um, at a given time. And I think if people see that you're working on a problem, they're actually maybe less likely to try to reinvent the wheel. Maybe they will say, let's, um, you know, let's try to join forces, let's collaborate with them, let's contribute to their project rather than having to start our own. Um, so I think in many times it actually helps you to, to be, to do real-time open research, it, it prevents being scooped. Um, but, but there are probably some, you know, discoveries that really are, once you know it, it's very easy to prove, but the act of thinking it was uh, the really challenging part. But I don't think that's most of science. Yeah, so does that... Um, I guess I would recommend if you're a researcher and, um, you know, maybe try starting your next project in a more open way. And um, uh, I think it can be really great for especially early career researchers uh, who don't who haven't established a large body of research yeah. to do a project openly. And the reason there is that uh, the publication process and the process of completing a scientific study is slow. And so if you're a graduate student, you either can start immediately establishing outputs uh, that speak to essentially your scientific expertise and credibility, um, or you could wait for three to five years before getting sort of any research to your name. And that's kind of the paradigm now, and I, I think it disadvantages early career people. So uh, I think it's, you know, if say you're a grad student, really, you know, show everyone what you're doing immediately, start getting recognition for that, especially nowadays with so much of um, visibility and discoverability coming through search engines and the web, yeah. it's, it's very helpful um, to essentially get your research out there, have it indexed by Google, and having people start to discover your research. Brilliant. Thank you, Daniel. And in in case you wondered why I went really quiet, it's because I accidentally put myself on mute and started talking to you. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, and I was like, why is Daniel not asking my question? Anyway, so. <laughs> well, let's hear the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was thinking when you get to a point where you want to um, publish your work, you would um, say, be, uh, submit to a journal and hopefully your work's accepted and then your work gets a um, DOI. So in that respect, you can be cited. Now, before when you're working on open research, you're obviously in a stage where you're gathering results. Maybe you've done some specific research that would be really beneficial for someone else to include in their research that they're doing and they publish before you. Is there a way when you're doing this um, real time open research that you are able to be cited before your work is published? Uh, I think so. I, this is definitely an area where not everyone's going to agree, but yeah. um, I don't think that citations have to be to peer-reviewed publications. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the point of citations is to acknowledge sources. Yeah. And um, therefore, if someone comes across your real-time open research and finds it helpful and um, uses the ideas or the software or the data uh, in their study, uh, they should cite your open research, and that may mean citing a GitHub discussion. It may mean citing a lab notebook. Um, so I have had people cite my sort of intermediate outputs. I, I think yep. at, they're less likely to than if it were in a journal article. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, one risk with having people start citing a lot of um, more transient sources like tweets and, and yeah. discussions is that sometimes they don't have the persistence. Yeah. You know, journals are pretty good at making sure the articles stay around. Yeah. Um, so I think we, sh as a community, should think about using tools that will have staying power and persistence. And maybe this is one area where publishers can step in um, to bring more persistence to um, the intermediate research outputs. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there are obviously repositories out there, things like Figshare, which will give you a DOI for specific work. I've used Figshare myself for infographics I've created. And I did an article with um, two scientists about uh, free tools that you can use to increase the impact of your work um, from a science perspective. And it was, um, and I used Figshare. And the great thing about that is that though the work, uh, well, it did, the article did end up being published. But however, for the infographic, I was able to put it into Figshare, give it a DOI so I can measure the impact of it with an altmetric school, for example. Um, so that's been really handy for me. Um, and it's quite interesting because there's a, a lot of movement. I mean, there always has been, but I think there's a much faster movement in the adoption of um, things like virtual reality. And I don't know if you use much multimedia when you do your open research. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, I think a lot of research projects actually create a very diverse set of outputs, whether they're figures, videos, um, discussion, data sets, code, uh, you name it. Any of these could be an output from a research project. And Figshare, I've used it and it's extremely helpful 
you know, when you have an output and you want to yeah. share that with the world and, and give it a DOI. Yeah. Um, so I do see a, a big, um, you know, role for services like Figshare and Zenodo um, for just sort of kind of uh, taking snapshots of files and allowing them to, to be preserved and shared and cited. They don't entirely solve the issue that um, you can't do research just on Figshare. You can't have a discussion really with someone else. Yeah, um, totally. It's not the medium for actually doing the science. It's a medium which you can share much smaller units of science than yeah. than the traditional journal system. Yeah. Um, but it's still not the medium where we can actually be using it to interact and and accomplish science. No, that's really interesting. That thank you, Daniel. Um, so that kind of leads me on to thinking, what challenges have you faced that maybe you could give some tips to people or lessons learned? And this could be people like we we're talking about the um, early career researchers, people who are just starting out or people who've been doing this uh, for a while. And you could actually give them a tip that can really help them improve what they're doing at the moment. Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge that people face is uh, younger researchers enter a system which is just sort of closed for no other reason than that's the way things were always done. So it can be a bit intimidating as say a younger graduate student or just someone who, who would like to be more open to go to more senior people and be like, can we change the way we're doing things? Um, and, and it's a bit delicate of a situation. Um, especially if you're, you know, asking other people to change how they do their research to be more um, public with it. But uh, what I found is if you explain yourself and your motivations um, and why you think it's a good idea, um, most people are very receptive and it really is not that they have anything against being more open. They just had never really done things that way. And I think um, you know, a, a lot of people will end up seeing the merits pretty quickly and say thanks for for um, encouraging us to, to do that. But obviously, as a team, you should coordinate these decisions with other people. And it's easiest kind of when you're starting your own project and you're the leader. So you can just say this project will be open from the start and then everyone goes along with that. Uh, it's a bit harder if you are plopped into an existing team and you want to change those structures. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant advice. Thank you. And so that leads me on to say, what is the most frustrating thing about the open research process that if you could wave a magic wand, we'd all love a magic wand, um, you could change? <laughs> now, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> the most frustrating thing for me is um, that I do all my research online, you know, I make sure everything is well documented, yep. essentially nothing I do in private, meaning that if I've done a piece of science, it is most likely out there for people to reuse and read. Um, but I still get emails <laughs> about my science uh, when the people emailing me could have um, used sort of the public forum. And so when I get emails asking me questions about why something was done this way, I say, can you please post that as a GitHub issue? And 
um, 90% of the time the people do, and, and then we have that discussion in a public forum, which I find immensely valuable because uh, it's discoverable and visible to everyone else, so hopefully I don't get asked the same question, and if yeah. I do, I can just send a link to, to that. So um, I guess the frustrating thing is that um, many people um, still are not accustomed to, to communicating in an open way when I'm like, please, let's just communicate in the open. <laughs> but they might want to have a, a personal private conversation with you. They might want to connect with you on that level. So this is your opportunity to enable people to uh, be better at asking you questions in an open environment. Do you have a link that you would tell them to go to, for example? Yes, so I would find uh, where the research was actually done. And so for me, uh, on GitHub, each project tends to have its own repository. Yeah. Uh, so, so you would find that repository, and then you could open a new issue. Okay. And um, I do think, yeah, maybe sometimes people want to um, chat in private, but actually I, I think usually they're under the impression that the researchers may want to chat in private, which is yeah. in my case not, not the case. <laughs> so basically we're telling people communicate with yourself via GitHub, set up an issue, and you'll chat quite openly and, and discuss. It's all about open research, as we said, real-time open research. Uh, exactly. Even if I'm just writing a note for myself, I should do that in the public forum because um, first it's easier for me to find and, and it, uh, it it's part of the scientific process. And um, why I think this is so important is that every, you know, there's a limited amount of time we as researchers have to to give to do work and, and to do investigation and whenever we do investigation and the outputs of that investigation or the thoughts or the findings are put in a non-public forum that's a, a essentially time that is being taken away from contributing to the um the information commons or, or the researcher commons uh such yeah. that I think we'll be a lot more efficient and productive overall if um, we take all the fruits of our effort and put them in a, in a communal, accessible place. Yeah, and I think that that sounds really fair. Um, so, what is the best thing about open re about the open research process or real time open research? I would say. Um, Besides really, I think, being able to accelerate science and research, as I was touching on, yeah. um, I think it can make your life way less uh, frustrating. So an example is, you know, oftentimes there are good intentions in science, but uh, or research, there, there end up being a lot of conflicts because there are questions over who did what and kind of what, you know, authorship, ordering, different um, work should have. I, I think a lot of these problems go away when everything was done uh, transparently in the public. I think a lot of the um, most negative aspects of science, the, the parts that really make people leave and, and switch from academia to other fields, um, go away when science is done in an open way. A, a lot of the bad behaviors become 
um, you know, they they go away. Yeah, they become less and less, don't they? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I had um, some questions that were sent to me. So first, I'm going to do um, put it into context, and then I've got um, a couple more questions for you. Well, actually, there are four, not a couple, because that's two. Um, okay, so researchers today produce many and diverse research outputs. Yet the journal article continues to serve as the dominant communication vehicle for those outputs, as it has for centuries. Um, and it's interesting that they that uh, the person that gave this to me talks about journal articles because I think about lots of different types of content and I've been doing a lot of stuff on books. So as I read this, I am thinking, what about books in my head? So um, the journal article model has prevailed for so long largely because of reward assessment and recognition in academia and are closely linked to publishing. Um, as new technology and strict funder mandates drive change in research practices from say life science to social science, how do you feel publishing practices will evolve? Daniel. <laughs> yes, so I do think and I agree the journal article um, is really considered and is kind of the main unit of, of how science has progressed, but I don't think it necessarily should be. Um, oftentimes a journal article by itself is not very useful. What's actually useful is say the data or the software um, yeah. or maybe like a mouse model. Um, you know, it's the paper alone is of very little utility. <laughs> it, not always, but oftentimes. Yeah. And I really hope to see science move towards um, incentivizing and rewarding what is actually useful um, versus now, which uh, sort of rewards the journal article and the useful outputs kind of have to be massaged into the context of a journal article. So if data is actually what's useful in a given field, then making a well-documented data set, whether or not it has publications on it, should be a valid academic contribution. Um, if software is what's valuable, you know, making a good software package should be what's valued. Yeah. So what do you think are the pros and cons of maintaining or changing um, the current uh, system that we have for publishing? Well, I guess the only con I can think of is that we <laughs> know the current system works to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's where it ends. I don't think the current system works very well, and I think um, the current system really frustrates many people. and. Um, I think it's worth taking some degree of risk to try to improve it. So uh, I think we should kind of envision what better systems would look like. And uh, to me, that vision includes real-time open science and uh, having researchers collaborate rather than yeah. uh, work in silos. And um, we should move towards that end. What's complicated is there are many players, funders, universities, uh, evaluation committees. So um, it's always challenging to say, you know, 
who should we, which actor should do what to make a change. But I would argue if you're listening to this, you probably have some role where you could make a change. So I'd say take, take a little leap of faith. Um, if you think science should be more open, if you think we should collaborate um, in the real time, do that, whether you're, you're thinking about the benefits it'll bring or not, and, and see what happens. Uh, I guess maybe the saying is, be the change you want to see. Oh, I love that, Daniel. That's brilliant. And that's absolutely, I mean, I, I'm a great believer in that myself. So, you know, people have to make the change. And, and many of these companies, well, actually many, all of these companies are run by people at the end of the day. So people can make decisions and they can change decisions as well. Um, so being a bit more specific, how do you and your fellow researchers or even just you perceive the value added by publishers now? I mean, is there, do you feel that there's value added? Uh, I think journals are used as a way of evaluating um, research and the credibility of it. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, we don't really need publishers in the sense that everyone could post their articles as preprints. Uh, I don't think publishers now fulfill much of a, you know, typesetting, um, obligation it's not we're not in a print world anymore I, I guess is what i'm saying such that uh we all really could be releasing our articles without journals or without publishers um what publishers do is coordinate the peer review process um and by choosing to publish something um lend the credibility of their journal to specific articles um which i think does have its merits but uh for me, peer review really should be done in a public manner, as such that the peer review is public and preferably done post-publication, uh, such that I think we could get many of the benefits that journals and publishers bring us uh, if all articles were shared openly and then were commented on by other researchers, by peers in a public forum. Uh, I, I think that would actually have many benefits by making the feedback uh, that was given to certain papers more available, and it would increase the uh, number of peers who could review any given paper. I mean, it's really interesting, Daniel, to hear your point of view there, because I kind of sit on the fence on both sides in respect that I'm a I'm an independent researcher, so I don't have an affiliation to um, an institution. And so I have, as an independent researcher, um, my own challenges that I face. But then I have worked with intermediaries and I have worked for publishers. Um, and so I have a good understanding of um, what publishers are doing um, internally and how they help with the quality of the output. And I know that you talked about peer review and peer review relies on the community to um, review that. But obviously you've got the editorial boards with the quality, um, certainly from the aspect of discoverability, publishers um, help with the data output to ensure that content can be discovered after. But you and I could have a whole podcast on discussing about publishers and why I think that they are valuable and why you think 
they may not be as valuable. <laughs> but we're not going to do that today. So um, what I and the last the last part of that is um, and we may have already touched on this in some respects anyway, but how is that changing? So um, do you perceive that um, when we talked about your perception of the publishers and their added value or not added value, um, do you perceive that that's changing at all with current times and with all the initiatives that there are out there and the ways that we can um, store data now in you know institutional repositories or um, some uh, in terms of uh, the type of um, places that you're actually publishing your work and making it more visible or even just your research? Yeah, I do see that changing. Um, I think preprints are becoming more accepted. I'm working on a, a tool called Manubot, which mm -hmm. allows people to essentially be their own publisher, to um, have their paper be republished anytime they make a change, and doing that in a very transparent way. Um, so I think it really depends on whether scientific communities and disciplines are willing to um, step away from um, journals. It goes back to our discussion before on citation practices and whether yeah. people cite things that are not peer reviewed, but um, I don't think there are many technical barriers remaining to um, having a future where journals play a different role than they play today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the researcher to read a conference, I don't know which stream that you went into, but I went into the open access monographs one. And a lot of our discussion was, you know, with the future the way it is and how technology is evolving, why are we even putting, why are we even saying that something is a book and something is an article? At the end of the day, it's all just content. Why are we defining defining things in a certain way? It should all be discoverable and it should all be connected the way that we need it to be connected. But, you know, there is so much emphasis on journal articles, but there's so much other type of content out there that we need to be considering. So it's a, it's a really interesting um, uh, thought that you bring up there. So my I have one last question for you, Daniel. And actually, I didn't tell you about this, but I suddenly randomly thought about it. Sure. So I um I uh, we may have publishers, intermediaries, so like those service providers um out there who work with publishers or work with yourselves. They're the they are the tools, the platforms that you use. Um, is there anything that you want to say to them that um either it's something that you know you find frustrating or something that you love. Um, or something that you would really like them to change because now is kind of like a great opportunity for you to just tell them from Daniel. Okay, well, I, I <laughs> and you don't have you may not have. No, I'll, I'll say something very specific, okay. and um, maybe it won't apply to everyone, but I, I think most of us are using DOI infrastructure, digital object identifiers. Yeah. Um, so I would say if you're publishing content and you're not using DOIs, consider using them. Um, but for all the publishers that are using them, that's great. Um, but make sure you're following best practices, such as um, filling out all of the metadata, making sure that the metadata is correct and complete. Um, 
for example, now you can uh, show citations for your articles in the Crossref metadata. And yes, you can. That, that's been really helpful for people to analyze the citation network of science. Yeah. And having good metadata helps your work be cited and reused. Um, something that I work on is called citation by identifiers. So the idea is to automate the process of, um, of citations and bibliography such that people only have to put a DOI and everything else is automated. But that only works if publishers submit um, proper metadata, you know, no dates that are a thousand years in the future, no um, author names that are all uppercase, no titles that are all uppercase, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You are a man after my own heart. I the the thing is with these repositories where you, or these services that register DOIs. Um, some of the quality of some of that data that is sent to, uh, for example, Crossref can be shocking. And I have uh, worked for um, a service provider where which exposed that data um, publicly on it would build pages to expose that data. And I um, used to be constantly uh, working with publishers to say this metadata is wrong. Please, can you make sure, like the the author is um, saying that the author order is incorrect, or um, there's a something wrong in the title? Maybe there was a spelling mistake. And I completely back you up on that. That our data quality, if we get that right from the beginning, and it goes into a repository like Crossref, which is now used for so many other things, like you know, QDOS and Altmetric and um, all these other type of services are using it and exposing that data. It has to be really good quality from the beginning. The better quality our data at the beginning, the better it is for discoverability um, in the future. Exactly. Oh, you are a man after my own heart. We could have a whole podcast <laughs> about data, I tell you. But yes, it's, uh, yeah. it's really key. Yeah, and I, yeah, absolutely, 100%. That is just so important. Um, well, yeah, thanks, Lou, so much. This was a great opportunity. Oh, do you know, thank you, Daniel, so, so much. And the tool that you talked about that you're building, is that openly available for people to see? Yeah, that is. So um, what's the link? Tell us the link. If you go to manubot.org. So, so that spell is that? M-A-N-U-B-O-T dot org. Imagine manuscript bot. There we go. Going to look that um, up. Fantastic. It's for more technical users who are interested in uh, writing their paper on GitHub. Uh, we actually use it to have a collaborative review paper yeah. uh, where we had, uh, I think, close to 30 authors from all over uh, propose changes to this review paper and then yeah. review them and accept them. So that was um, how this project started. And it can um, uh, enable people to collaborate at scale uh, all across the world. Fabulous. Well, that's a good point to leave it on, isn't it? Exactly. Daniel, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I hugely appreciate it. And, um, and I'm hoping that you'll come back over the pond again soon um, and uh, be attending some more conferences. I hope so too. <laughs> good. Brilliant. Okay. Daniel, thank you so much. Yeah, have a great one. Thanks everyone for listening.